Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast, brought to you today by the podcast Good Faith Effort from B'nai Zion. We will talk about that more in due course. With me today is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Back again for day two of her return to the podcast, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, our favorite Supreme Court watcher, commentary contributor, AEI scholar, uh, Boyden Gray for the Administrative State Center of the Center of Boyden Gray, Adam White. Hi, Adam. Hi, John. I know that's not the name of your center. So tell everybody <laughs> the name of your center. Well, it's not the center for the administrative state. That's most other law schools. Uh, this is the, uh, the center for the study of the administrative state right. uh, at yes. George Mason University. Yes, and, and named for uh, one of my favorite people on earth, Boyden Gray, uh, who was White House counsel in, uh, in the first Bush administration and one of the loveliest people on earth. Anyway, <clears throat> moving on to uh, the topic of the day, the week, the month, the year, uh, the, um, the Supreme Court decision uh, in Dobbs. Um, Adam, we haven't had an actual person who knows what he's talking about on the podcast since we started talking about this on Friday and have done, you know, several hours of uh, blather on it um, while I think hopefully not embarrassing ourselves too much. But you you did listen to our podcast yesterday. Is there anything uh, I just is there anything you think we need to correct from our general, uh, obvious, non-scholarly study of the of the Dobbs decision? No, I don't think so. And I think it's good to start the first couple of days of discussion of this sort of generational case, uh, focusing on the big picture and not getting too deep down into the details. And now that we're getting down more to the details, I just say, I think Justice Alito's opinion, we talked about this when the draft came out, really is maybe the, the best quintessential example of originalist analysis in a Supreme Court opinion from top to bottom. Um, it really is, I think, the ideal of the kind of jurisprudence or method that the conservative legal movement has been putting together for nearly a half a century, not coincidentally, all you know, really largely in response to cases like Roe. I would say, and I think this was more on the Friday show, you discussed Chief Justice Roberts's ambivalence. Um, I, I saw it slightly differently. I was really struck by his opinion as well. Um, and there's a lot that I like about it. I like the Alito opinion more, but I thought that Chief Justice Roberts's concurrence maybe deserves a little bit more credit than it's gotten in public in terms of the institutional approach, the way he really did parse the arguments that were offered um, and the way that they were offered and thinking through what's the right role of the court. I still like the Alito opinion better, but if, I think the one thing that's been lost in the debates so far have been both the specifics of Roberts's opinion and what it signals for his leadership of the court going forward. Well, you know, there's this whole talk about how Roberts lost the court. Roberts has lost the court. There have been like five op-eds about how Roberts lost the court. The court isn't doesn't belong to the chief justice. What just just for the sake of to take two minutes and explain what is the actual role of the chief justice of the Supreme Court? He's not the boss of the Supreme Court. He's not the he's not the he's not their employer. He's what is what is the chief justice? You know, Chief Justice Roberts has joked over the years that it, and he's studied his predecessors, the chief justices, quite a lot and, and spoken about them. And he often jokes that the chief justice needs to be careful not to pull too hard on the reins because he'll find that they're not attached to anything. And that's basically true. Uh, the chief justice is, unlike other justices, is actually named in the, the Constitution. The Constitution makes clear there will be a chief justice and, and whatever other justices are established by Congress. His formal powers are pretty limited. He's the chief administrator of the court. He is um, uh, he's automatically the senior most justice, regardless of how new he or she is. So he gets to assign majority opinions whenever he's in the majority. And as the centrist on the court until recently, that meant he was almost he was he was in the majority more than just about anybody. Um, other than that, though, it's pretty limited. I think he's the, the chairman of the Smithsonian, which sounds nice. Um, 
But other than that, it really is uh, a much more limited role. He's first among equals and sort of leads the debate in conference. Now, I will say, I think, and I've, I've spoken on this and I've, I writ, wrote about it around the time of Roberts's 10th year anniversary on the court. If you go back and look at the chief justices, they are almost all institutionalists. And I think you'll find that the chief justices tend to be shaped more by the, by the institution than they shape the institution. There's, there's famous exceptions, Marshall and Taft and Warren, uh, but they're famous because they're the exceptions. And most others you find, uh, they sort of show a kind of gravitational pull from the, from the institution itself. They tend to become more consensus builders. Uh, they, they are often moderated by their role as the chief. The natural experiment for this was Rehnquist, who started as the lone dissenter as an associate justice, the lone ranger, they called him. But by the end of his career, he was very much a centrist and an institutionalist. And I think it's probably good that the chief justice has that role. Um, we wouldn't want nine chief justices on the court, but it's good to have at least one whose, whose name is on the door, so to speak, the Roberts Court, the Rehnquist Court, uh, and, and who is more sort of immediately grounded in the institution than the other justices. So let's talk about the, the polls then. So you have Roberts as the institutionalist being formed by the institution, as Yuval Levin might say, being molded by yeah. the institution rather than using the institution as a platform. And on the other hand, in these two concurrences in the Dobbs case, you have Clarence Thomas, who seems to have decided that his role is to uh, talk about, to say the unsayable or to think through the unthinkable or to think about law utterly absent any bounds other than the intellectual, the procedural and the theoretical, meaning he says in his concurrence, oh, come on, we all know the reason that Roe has to be overturned is the doctrine, the real doctrine that allowed its implementation is balderdash. That is not due process, but substantive due process, which allows you to define due process however you want to. And we need to throw this out in the garbage can because it's, a, it's, an, intel, it's an intellectually infamous unconnected to anything idea. And let's be honest, if we do that, then all of these other decisions that liberals just love are going to be implicated in it, meaning Obergefell, which is the gay marriage decision, Lawrence, which is the uh, sodomy decision, and Griswold, which is the uh, contraception decision. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about that is that Alito, the, the majority opinion is so painstakingly designed not to address this question, but to say that abortion is a unique and un, uh, a, you, you know, you can't like analogize it to anything else. It's a unique condition. It's a unique state. This is a unique form of jurisprudence. And the answer to Roe and Casey does not implicate other doctrines because we have competing rights and competing questions of state interest in life that are not brought up by these others. But Thomas is basically saying, ah, come on. You're only, you're only saying that so you can get to six to three, you know, that's not what you really think. Like he's like, he's like the angel on the shoulder or the devil on the shoulder, depending how you want to look at it. You think there's that a sort of fair description of the what you might imagine was going on in the in the when they were like kicking back and having brandy in their offices he and uh, you know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh discussing this yeah I mean fair all except for the devil part I might not have gone there but um but yeah when, when the draft it, it and superego so he's either the yeah. superego saying come on you really need to speak to your highest angels or he's the id saying come on let's just go for it let's go for it yeah, that's right. I, and when the draft leaked and it, we saw that Alito had written the draft, and but Thomas probably was in a position to assign that majority opinion to Alito. And I think we may have talked about this on the podcast. It, be, it was immediately clear that Thomas would have more to say. Uh, he didn't necessarily say all the things that I expected him to say. Maybe we, we'll touch on that later. But it, it's clear, and I think you mentioned this on the show yesterday, that Thomas really is inspired by the example of Justice Harlan in Plessy versus Ferguson, and also I'd say by the role of Justice Scalia, right, who was who was pushing dissenter. the court. Yeah. Right, right. And Thomas is going to be the great concurrer 
if that's a word, um, <laughs> and, and continue to challenge the court to go further. Now, in a way, it's because he differs from the rest of most of the rest of the conservatives in two ways. First, his substantive view of the Constitution is maybe slightly different than Alito in terms of how far certain provisions carry. But also, and this is important, his view of stare decisis is much more limited than some of the other justices. So it's both that he reads the Constitution slightly differently than other conservatives might, but also that he's more willing to implement his understanding of it in judicial decisions uh, without being so constrained by stare decisis. And of course, both of those factors were in play here, and they were both important for the, the court's resolution of the case and, and will be for other cases. Um, politically, though, and uh, Abe, let's so politically, uh, what Thomas did in terms of like the politics of the present moment was impolitic in the sense that he has allowed the intrusion of this idea that that these other decisions are, are, are inevitably going to fall since he literally says in the concurrence that they should fall we need to look at them again. And that basically means we should look at them again and overturn them. Um, had that concurrence not been written, it would have been much harder for the opponents of the decision to say, aha, they're coming at everything now. Because he said, We're, we should come at everything now. And the majority opinion is very careful to say, we're not coming for anything else. We do not think that this implicates any other jurisprudence. So does it matter? I mean, Adam's saying like, you know, Thomas is like planting a marker like Harlan or somebody like that. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care how he's responded to. Don't you kind of think he cares though? I mean, uh, that almost seems uh, to, to sort of um, be part of what's at play here. Um, uh, people who don't people people tend to pride themselves on not caring, which I think is uh, you know uh, an indication of actually caring, and 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 I so I think to 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 so specifically um, reach back to things that were not mentioned um, uh, and were not cited um, does strike me as as um, uh, I don't know. Stirring the pot a little bit. Okay, so Christine, does Thomas want to own the libs or is he essentially advancing a very serious form of jurisprudence in which he says history is flat? Don't 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 play games saying, well, you know, people thought this then and they thought this there. The Constitution has a plain meaning. History doesn't matter in that sense, like starry decisis, legislative history. What matters is what the Constitution says, and only Constitution. And if we allow ourselves to be guided by its plain meaning, although it's hard to say that a lot of these clauses and a lot of these things in the in the Constitution have plain meanings, um, but if we allow ourselves to be guided by that, that's the only way. Otherwise, otherwise, everything is get sophistry is going to enter in, and we're going to be able to say whatever we want to say. Like, well, we like due pro we have due process in the Constitution. We can't really figure out how to find a constitutional right to sodomy. So we'll just we'll add this adjective that says substantive. We'll add an adjective and that'll 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 help us. So that's that's sort of so. But or as Abe's Abe's sort of saying, you know, Thomas has spent 30 years being a villain. He came to public attention, becoming this cartoonish villain in this absolutely scandalous, libelous uh act of defamation by Anita Hill, of which there is no evidence, no proof. And her relative silence over the last 30 years, I think, gives gives the lie to the idea that she was martyred by him and everything like that. She went back into some corner and stayed in her corner after having failed to uh, push him out in the way that she and the liberal legal establishment tried to push him out. But he, so there he is, 30 years, a pariah, uh, except to very, very conservative people. And and yeah, so like, screw them. Well, it, you know, it's always fascinated me. His, he's always been a kind of purist in a way, uh, both philosophically and in a way almost politically, but he's also been 
uh, as you say, he's been kind of martyred by this process. And there's a there's a sense in which both the culture and, and particularly political culture has never been able to see him apart from the moment when he came onto the court and all of the baggage that was brought, none of which was his fault. It's really difficult for mainstream media still to deal with him just on his intellectual uh, arguments, right? They just can't do it. And I think that's why, I mean, in one sense, I, I'm sympathetic to, to Abe's argument because he, at the older he gets, the more I think he does seem both to care and not care, right? He actually doesn't care what the mainstream media thinks of him and he's kind of an antagonist of theirs. And the thing is though, it's very useful as a raw cultural role because he completely shows, he reveals what they really think. I mean, the horrific things that have been written about him on social media uh, just over the last week, uh, you know, calling him the N-word, calling him Uncle Tom, it's absolutely reprehensible. It's something that would never be tolerated when if people on the right were prominent people on the right were saying that about any liberal justice. It's just, it's nasty and it, and it's, it should be called out for what it is. It's, it's racist. It's horrible. But there's a sense in which when he writes an opinion, I don't get the sense that he's trying to convince anyone in the public. Um, in fact, many times he's trying to convince some of his, uh, you know, conservative colleagues. So I, I, he, he really is a kind of almost novelistic figure in the culture because he's never been able in the minds of the public to separate his philosophy and articulate it in a way that people don't constantly look to the origins of his moment on the court. And I could be, I, I'm happy to be uh, told that I'm completely wrong by Adam because he knows more about this than I do, but he's just, he's just morally and culturally been such, an, such a, uh, a flashpoint in our culture about so many issues, uh, particularly with regard to race that um, I think he, he cares less about some things, but I think he cares more about the court and his sort of the purity of his arguments the longer his career goes on. I mean, look, he wrote a, a memoir called My Grandfather's Son. It's a great book, yeah. Which is one of the great American books. And people read Trevor, you know, every kid um, who is, uh, you know, in a private school in America uh, from the between the ages of, you know, 12 and 17 now reads Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, which is a book about South Africa and does not read Clarence Thomas Thomas's My Grandfather's Son, which is a story about how he grew up as this, you know, child of poverty in this incredibly unstable environment and was taught self-discipline, self-respect, and how to be in a world that was hostile to him. It's an extraordinary book. And, you know, I don't know, nobody, you're not allowed to read it, uh, apparently, because he's too, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't fit the right categories that allow you to present a, a book to a teenager um, saying, oh, look, here's what it, here's what the black experience is like. So we, we can go abroad to a comedian's story of and an intellectual you know, lightweight like Trevor Noah. Sorry, yeah, not a fan. anyway, it just, <laughs> it just occurred to me uh, as I was thinking about it, because, um, uh, you know, Thomas said when he when he published this book, he wrote every word himself. He was never going to do it again. It was an agony to do it, but that he was proud of it. It's quite short. It's very compact and it is overwhelmingly powerful. And he has, you know, I mean, look, it's sold, it's sold millions of copies. It's not like it's not been, a, but it is not a cultural touchstone because his politics are bad. Uh, you know, to the to to the mainstream. And it is interesting how you can shunt off the most important African-American in this country for the last 30. You can shunt them off into a corner if you control the commanding heights of the culture. Is there, aside from Barack Obama, is there a an African-American more important than than Clarence Thomas in the United States? I mean, I can't I can't think of one. I can't honestly think of one. I mean, he there may is, be. Le oh, go ahead. Hmm? There is, there is former future presidential candidate Oprah. <laughs> well, I mean, culturally, in former some ways, future. yeah. But it's no, it's no. I mean, it, it's just, it's an, it, it's an interesting fact. And maybe he's less Maybe he's less a figure like that in terms of importance, precisely because he has defined his career as being fearlessly willing to confront the contradictions of. Um, of a more liberal of the more liberal jurisprudence that you know has sort of dominated uh, the courts since the 1950s, and and that is a lonely and hard road to go on. Uh, 
um, and has made him at some point seem a little like a flake or, you know, his interest, constitutional interest often involve, we talked about this the other day, the 10th Amendment, things like that, that nobody really wants to talk about um, because they, they, date, they, date, they date back to a previous way of thinking about the constitutional order. This is one of the things I love best about Justice Thomas, and I think it comes through very clearly in his concurrence, and it is the way he approaches the public. And by the way, his, his memoir is powerful, even more so when you listen to the audiobook version, which he reads himself, and it's just amazing. But one of the subtle distinctions between him and Scalia over the years was their basic uh, sort of view of what their job was. Scalia would often say, interpreting the Constitution, the work of a judge is lawyer's work. And it requires the basic toolkit that lawyers have. Thomas always tended to phrase it somewhat differently. He would talk really glowingly in terms of, of the public reading judicial opinions, of wanting to write, of the court needing to write opinions that the public could understand and appreciate, even if they're not technical experts reading these things. These things had to approach the public as a whole and not just speak to communities of lawyers. And Thomas would often talk about his summer road trips in his RV back to Nebraska with Ginny. And he would meet people um, along the way who would ask him about judicial opinions, who had read judicial opinions. He clearly loved that. And so sort of almost ironically, while Thomas's approach is maybe a click more philosophical than, um, than Scalia's was, in reaching for the deeper principles of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas saw this really as a part of speaking with the public. And I think in some ways, his plain spokenness and his bluntness and his willingness to sort of look past some of the, or to speak past some of the technical, tech, you know, technocratic legal debates really exemplifies his view of the role of a Supreme Court justice. And also the, his view of the constitution as belonging to all the people uh, and not just the lawyers. And that really comes through in the way he he cuts through what he sees as some of the technical nonsense and says, yes, this does, this opinion does sort of point us towards reconsidering other entire areas of doctrine, which he's been saying for years. I tend to think Justice Alito's parsing of stare decisis, that, that suits my taste a bit better. But I, I, I think Justice Thomas's concurrence exemplifies his view of the role of the judge in speaking with the people. And I just want to say one last thing on this subject, which is that, um, and this jives with my uh, relatively limited, but uh, but not uh, some personal experience with, with Thomas over the last uh, 30 years, which is that it is said uh, 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 that he alone among the justices of the court knows the name of every uh, subsidiary worker uh, in, at the, in the Supreme Court. He knows the name of the people who work in the garage. He knows the name of people who work in the kitchen. He knows the names of the custodians. He knows who everybody is. He is now, first of all, he's been there longer than anybody else, but he knows who everybody is. He is civil, sociable. He knows the names of their wives and their kids and stuff like that. Now, does that matter in terms of why we should, you know, think it doesn't? But it tells you that the idea that you might have in your head uh, that he is sort of sitting there like Scrooge trying to figure out how to take your rights away and make you work on Christmas morning and all of that is, is, is entirely wrong and off. Noah, uh, you have been uh, quiet thus far, and I'm wondering whether you the, this whole question of we're looking at this decision in this part of the conversation entirely through the lens of what was on the right, right? The, Thomas and Roberts concurrences and the majority opinion. And then we have the minority opinion. I mean, the, the, the dissent, right. The, the issued by the minority and um, uh, it's political. The, the, the central message of that um, is a radical lot for people who say the court has done something radical. There is a very radical sentiment in the minority opinion which is that as a result of this, uh, women, are, women who are pregnant are not free any longer. I mean, it sort of says they do not have freedom. It doesn't say all women all time at all, but that they are no longer free because they no longer have exclusive dominion over their own body. I think you're actually softening the, the dissent to a degree that 
um, lets the the liberal justices off the hook. They they made a much more sweeping argument about the rights that women are deprived of the second they are fertilized, um, which is madness. It's emotional. It, it's, it's an appeal to emotion it, to a degree that is the, the mirror image of the kind of dispassionate intellectual honesty that is displayed by Justice Thomas, which is very compelling and terrifying because the practical effect of that kind of honesty would be apocalyptic in political terms, but it's outside the purview of the court to con consider um, the practical political effects of their interpretation of the Constitution. Well, it should it's, be outside the purview, be. but of course it is. It's right. certainly not for Justice Roberts, and it's certainly not for the liberals on the court. And um, that's the, the doctrine that seems to be animating at least the sort of um, the, the splitting of the baby, the threading of the needle that you get in the majority opinion or decision in this case. But I, I do want to ask uh, Adam a question that I'm very unclear on. How would future courts look upon federal legislation on abortion in the wake of this decision? Is that within the purview of the Congress at this point? Or is it would uh, Congress can do whatever it wants? Congress can pass unconstitutional so laws to, all day long if they want. So, so no, just to make it clear, you're referring to this idea that we've been hearing about for the last two days that Congress needs to go and codify in law what well, this was is from the left what was right from the left. But there is this idea. OK, we need to go and codify Roe into law because and there's all this. Why didn't we do it in the first? We should have done it years ago, but we didn't bother to get around to it or something like and that. And This is fundamentally what Justice Thomas's argument is. And it is inarguable that Congress cannot that if Congress does not act, that is not licensed for the Supreme Court to take up the charge in the absence of legislation. I mean, we have the I apologize to listeners because I've been calling it Michigan VEPA. It's West Virginia VEPA. They're similar only insofar as it involves the EPA and the EPA is going to lose. Um, but Coral Davenport at the New York Times had this piece the other day. Well, it was, uh, Supreme Court could strike down this this uh, regulatory mechanism that we're using to try to transition the um, transition the the energy production sector into you know renewable fuels. And if they shut that down, well, Congress hasn't acted on any of this. Well, too bad. Inaction is its own verdict. And if you take Justices, uh, Justices Thomas, Thomas's um, theory at face value, which again, I find very compelling, it just, he's prescribing action from Congress on sodomy laws, on gay marriage rights, on contraception, and yes, on abortion. However, this decision on abortion remains the issue to the states. Is this within the purview of federal legislatures anymore? So I'm so glad you asked. This is one of the things I expected Justice Thomas to raise in his concurrence, which he didn't. Um, the other issue, by the way, I wondered if he would sort of signal anything about his view of the 14th Amendment affirmatively protecting a right to life. Um, but I expected him, I, I, I kind of expected him to touch on the federal power question because he has before, uh, 15 years ago in a case called Carhartt, cha a challenge uh, to the, the, the congressional ban on partial birth abortion, the court upheld uh, that ban under the, the the undue burden standard. But Justice Thomas writes a concurrence and a very short concurrence. And he adds, nobody here has argued about the Commerce Clause, the limits of Congress's power to legislate on abortion. And so we'll have to save that for a future case. And I wondered when it was clear he was going to write a concurrence in the Dobbs case, whether he'd return to that issue. And I was struck by the fact that he didn't. Now that could cut either way, right? A limit on the Commerce Clause, or sorry, a com the Commerce Clause as a limit on Congress's power would limit Congress's ability either to codify an abortion right or to further limit abortion at the federal level. Uh, so that remains to be seen. It'll be interesting to see how both the conservative justices and the progressive justices would approach the Commerce Clause on this. But in addition, conservatives who would like to see federal action to limit abortion would probably uh, surely also invoke Section 5 of the 14th Amendment and they would argue that uh, this is a, a law, this legislation is necessary to protect uh, people's life from being deprived without due process. Um, so you could see people invoking that as, as authority for federal legislation to defend life. But we're gonna now see whether the court would circle back and, and, and argue that Congress doesn't have the power under the Commerce Clause to legislate on abortion. Well, we should try to explain this. So the Commerce Clause yeah. gives power, gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. And this is very important to the work that you do, Adam, right, at the, at the studying administrative law, yeah. because 
um, a lot of federal power uh, to to involve itself in the economy comes exclusively out of the out of the logic of the Commerce Clause, which is that the federal government, at least one part of the federal government, is allowed to regulate commerce as long as that commerce crosses state lines. And once it does, then the question is, how do you define the word commerce, which is very, very elastic? And so and so um, uh, can you use the Commerce Clause as a as as a source of legislation on abortion, giving Congress the power to regulate abortion across the state, across state lines or something like that. Do I have this right? Am I, am I? Yeah, that's, that's basically right. The constitution says that Congress has the power to regulate commerce among the several states. And so the question is, has long been, well, what counts as commerce? Is it just the, the transport of goods uh, across state lines? Is it in, in later decades, later centuries, it became, um, manufacturing activities that have a sort of a nationwide scope. Now, to be really clear here, you can have a broad view of Congress's federal power to regulate commerce and still have still be wary of administrative agencies. Chief Justice Roberts, for example, has a broad view of interstate commerce. Uh, he's wary of agencies. Others, like Justice Thomas, have a much more limited view of both. So they can so the doctrines can work separately. They can work together. But but Noah's exactly right that the moment that Congress begins to try to legislate begins to legislate on abortion again, you'll see this return to the Supreme Court. We're going to have the Supreme Court's not getting out of the abortion business. There's going to be administrative law cases involving abortion. There's going to be federalism cases like this Commerce Clause issue, uh, and the question will be, can Congress do this? But when I'll say just one last thing, Congress already legislates on any number of medical and health issues, right? They do it with drugs, the FDA, which is gonna be another source of, of huge litigation over abortion issues for years to come. I, I, I think it would take a pretty significant rollback of Commerce Clause jurisprudence to say Congress can't legislate on abortion. Uh, but then again, that's the sort of the transitional era we live in now where these things are being requestioned. I, I, uh, I commend to every listener's attention Adam White's article in the July-August commentary, now available at commentary.org, and you should subscribe, <clears throat> called Reigning in the Bureaucrats, which is a lot of this uh, deals with this issue of who gets to regulate and why and how uh, is it actually the case that Congress can sort of secondarily or tertiarily, if that's a word, Ar- uh, uh, arrogate uh, the the rights that it has to regulate interstate commerce to unelected officials in the executive branch. Can it say, because we have this power, but experts really need to understand how to do this. So we empower the, you know, in this case, uh, what, what Noah's talking about, the EPA to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and the EPA then makes these administ- policy decisions that are rightfully as a court uh, not in this in an EPA case, but as this uh, as the Fifth Circuit found that are 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 just as was the case with the Roe decision are rightfully the province exclusively of legislators. That that the legislature can't simply give its legislative functioning to somebody who works for the Health and Human Services Department and give them essentially legislative authority over an industry or something like that. Do I have that right, Adam? Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. Um, but might this not come up or something very similar to this come up regarding the abortion pill and the FDA's um, uh, uh, pronouncement that they're going to try to, that, that they officially sort of accept and, and want to provide, uh, you know, the abortion medication to, to all states? Well, Definitely. It, sorry, oh, I was going to say they, they will, I assume one thing they'll try to do is redefine, uh, you know, the morning after pill as a not as an abortion pill, but as just general health care to be considered just like contraception or just like vitamins. I mean, right. I mean, that's actually one tactic that they abortion is health care has been something that some of the, the abortion rights groups have been arguing for for years, and it never quite landed for people, but they're going to, I think they're going to have to redefine the, that particular medication in order to, I mean, otherwise, how could you sell it in Mississippi or Texas? Yeah, I'd say for all the times we keep saying that this Dobbs decision returns things to the states, and I say it too, and it's, I'd like it to be true. As with everything else in, <laughs> in law and policy today, it really returns it first and foremost to the administrative state, um, you know, one way or another. 
The FDA and HHS are obvious places. And you've already seen the Biden administration, including the attorney general, sort of get out in front of this. I think I saw a statement from him early on uh, after the decision saying that the FDA's approval of the, uh, the, of the, the, the morning after pill uh, can't be second guessed by the states. But he was very precise, I think, in the way he framed it. He said the states cannot block the distribution of the sale, the, the distribution of this, of, this, of this drug on the grounds of safety or efficacy were the phrases that he used, because that's what the FDA approves. So we're going to have a huge fight now, uh, surely in the courts, uh, over whether the distribution of that, uh, the state's limitation of that drug, if the states do try to limit it, is a second guessing of questions of safety or efficacy, or if it's something else. So we'll all have to dust, all the lawyers will have to dust off the, the U.S. code volumes describing the FDA's approval. We'll have to dust off the actual FDA approval and, and try to understand what was the FDA approving and why, and what room does it leave for the states. And this is a, a longstanding fight over 20 years in the Supreme Court. Uh, it began around the time Roberts arrived on the court in 05, over the extent to which the FDA's approval of drugs preempts state law. So we're going to get this kind of administrative fight over the limits of federal power. And I'm sure we'll get, and I think President Biden said, HHS should use all powers at its disposal to ensure the availability of this drug in all states. So we'll have fights over HHS's authority as you, well. You also, I'm sure some of you saw the absolutely uh, ridiculous tweet that the, a reporter had talked to Elizabeth Warren, and she's demanding that Biden have safe areas of national parks where abortions can be performed. I mean, no, there's this some is really, no joke. I know there's some wackadoodle ideas out there. But being it's not, by, that's, yeah, it's that, not wackadoodle. I can completely see that happening. Right. I, but, I, I say it's not wackadoodle at all i mean first of all it doesn't have to be national parks that's a weird like well, you know, it's you know, controlled by the federal land. government it's no, controlled no, no. by the federal government so they plenty can plenty claim... of land in the united states is controlled by the right. federal government including like spaces that the federal government can rent over which it would have you know could rent I and mean, this is the question I mean, this is the bizarre you could see a weird world in which the executive branch rents office space in a red state and sets up an abortion clinic. Now that it's sounds not the crazy. Vatican. It can't establish its own laws and rules. Yeah. And I mean, that's a federal well, question, obviously. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest constitutional cases in our history was McCullough versus Maryland. The whole question of whether states could tax the, the Bank of the United States in, right. in Maryland and in other states. I have to say the fight I'm looking forward to is when they try to, to, to do abortions or, or, dis, or distribute abortion patient drugs in national parks, and they have to do an entire Im environmental impact analysis. <laughs> yes, it's like on Godzilla and Motrash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, well listen, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> I mean, this is no joke. The New York Times has a lead article this morning about how liberals are getting angry at the Biden administration for not having um, positive policies ready to go to ensure uh, continued access to abortion in red states. And I, I think that there is an interesting political matter here that we should talk about uh, after I read the ad I'm about to read, about whether or not this is the camel's nose in the tent for the Democratic Party turning on Biden and looking for another candidate in 2024. But before I get to that, let me talk to you about our new advertiser, um, uh, the Good Faith Effort podcast. Uh, the Bible has played a pretty, pretty important role in American society from the founding era until today, from our politics to our pop culture. But have you ever wondered exactly how? That's where the Good Faith Effort podcast comes in, hosted by historian, rabbi, and pop culture aficionado Ari Lamb. Good Faith Effort brings on incredible guests each week from the world of politics, history, music, movies, faith, even venture capital, to host the kind of conversations you literally will not hear anywhere else. Want to hear a historian explain how the Talmud played a decisive role in political philosophy during the English Civil War? Or a legendary hip-hop exec talk about how Abraham in the book of Genesis helps him see run DMC in a new light? Or maybe one of the world's leading tech investors explain how the prophet Isaiah informs her work with startup founders? How about a former reporter for ESPN reflecting on the Bible's lessons or having normal political opinions in a world gone crazy? So look, Go subscribe to the Good Faith Effort podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts, and listen in to the inspirational, fun, crazy conversations about the Bible's role and surprising place in Western society you won't hear anywhere else. And we thank the Good Faith Effort podcast 
for coming on to sponsor the commentary podcast. Um, so uh, there are two ways of looking at this uh, emo highly emotional response to what happened on Friday. And one of them is, you know, okay, this is it. We got to go at the Republicans and tear out their jugulars as Democrats in order to create the conditions under which we can roll some of this back. Okay, if they want, if they want to fight, we we'll give them a fight. We're gonna get people elected, and we'll do whatever we can. The other is this thing of like, okay, the Supreme Court has done this now. What are you gonna do about this, Joe Biden? What are you, what are you gonna do? Like, we elected you, and you now have to do something. So that's where this idea of putting abortion clinics on federal lands comes in. It's where um, the idea that he now immediately needs to advocate for the um, expansion of the Supreme Court, which is Adam implicitly noted at the beginning of the podcast, actually is totally within the remit of Congress. With, uh, Supreme Court's uh, the making up, makeup of the Supreme Court in the Constitution only says there shall be a chief justice and and other justices and how the how many other justices is not enumerated in the constitution so you could have 200 you could have 500 you could have 17 you could have 14 you have 15 um uh and and so i think what you have here is at some point this there is a hunger among uh Demo there's going to be a weird hunger among democrats to blame biden for what happened here in and and not being sufficiently active and activist in 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 framing policies to stop the horror that is now being visited upon uh, women everywhere and it just dovetails with the fact that biden's not popular and that increasingly democrats are alarmed about him so what do you uh well, oh, what do you, where do you what do you, you got to qualify that the Democrats who are very alarmed by him are disproportionately represented in the discourse and in cable news and in social media. Take just you know a couple of polls that are in the field <clears throat> in the post row environment. NPR Marist, which was one of the friendliest to Democrats, found Democrats surging in the generic ballot, finds Joe Biden one of his best scores, albeit 14 points underwater, nevertheless. Uh, one of his better job approval ratings, Democrats approve of Joe Biden to the tune of 84%. Now let's take a worse poll, Reuters Ipsos. In the field, roughly the same period. Joe Biden's underwater to the tune of 22 points in that poll. It's not a good poll for him. Democratic support for Joe Biden, 73%. Now that could all change, but it would have to change because right now there's no appetite to jettison him from the ticket. There's no appetite now, but there's some appetite. There's more appetite than there should be um, for, you know, or there's more appetite than that you might might expect. And the appetite that's there is being uh, wedded by real world circumstances. It's not just dismay or disappointment with policies. Um, it is people looking at Biden and what he's like and how and, and how he is and how he behaves and thinking about the fact that two, it's going to be two more years uh, before uh, he's actually facing. Oh, a, but it a, won't a, be two more years before he's facing a primary challenge. In no, the not a primary challenge. It'll or be two a, more years a, before a he's in a general election. Or a real push to abdicate. Yeah. I mean, right. the central obstacle before him abdicating his role is Kamala Harris. I was just going to say. She's I mean, heir apparent. She's terrible. There, right. She's the heir apparent. She just there gave is an no, interview yesterday. It's terrible. The only alternative in that universe is a, a progressive candidate. The first person you think of who can uh, fit that bill is Bernie Sanders, who brings all the baggage Joe Biden has and more to the office. And there's a whole lot of vaporware around the, uh, the Justice Democrats progressive approach to uh, political insurgency. They have a terrible track record among Democrats. There's they, just they, they, they punch above their weight, but they're bantams. They also don't understand the basics of federalism. I mean, every time Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez goes on a on a late night talk show, she reveals her ignorance over and over again. And and I know that everybody on Twitter and Instagram loves her if they're if they're on the left. But I think a, even serious Democrats look at that and think this woman would never survive a we debate a, uh, on the debate stage. We have a real world case study. Justice Democrats devoted all their resources and effort to unseating the last pro-life Democrat in the conference in the caucus rather and they failed and they failed dismally 
and leadership abandoned them. They were actually quite annoyed by the effort. Wasn't that dismal. this particular Democrat? It wasn't that dismal. I mean, he only won by four points or something. It wasn't that dismal, but but it, but it was dismal in the sense that he was the number Quayar was the number one target, and uh, and his rival didn't didn't take him down. I, all I'm saying is that I, I, I take this. Don't take this in isolation. I'm saying that there are now multiple points of access to the idea that there needs to be a serious conversation among Democrats about whether or not Biden should be the nominee in 2024. Now, that's a dangerous conversation to have for them, because the more they have it, the weaker they make him, the more the weaker they make him, the weaker he is, the weaker he seems, the the less likely it is that he will prevail in 2024. And so even beginning the conversation publicly is a form of regicide (laughs) it's almost like attempted regicide if you actually hey go ahead it's inevitable that conservative victories are going to chip away further chip away at biden's popularity whether or not he has anything to do with them well let's Um, talk about those by the way because we should for a minute because not only are we waiting on this epa decision um which uh which will which will incur similarly apocalyptic rhetoric about how the world will now melt and you know burn up like the sun in 2027 if this regulatory scheme is overturned. But next year, there is going to be a major decision in affirmative action that is plausibly going to eliminate um, the affirmative action, eliminate affirmative action as a constitutional. How would you, I don't know, how, how would you describe what might happen to affirmative action once the court? I mean, we have these two cases, right? There's a sort of, there's a the Harvard case, and then there's another case. Some of that is about higher education, but how would you describe what might happen with affirmative action? Sure. Race based affirmative action could be declared unconstitutional or a violation of the Civil Rights Act. The, uh, the one case out of University of North Carolina is since it's a state university, the question is whether it's uh, race based admissions are unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And for a private university like Harvard, the question is whether it uh, whether race based affirmative action violates the Civil Rights Act's prohibition against racial discrimination in education. I think there, I think especially under the Civil Rights Act, affirmative action is in real danger. I think uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, analysis of the Civil Rights Act in the um, oh the the gender identity case um, suddenly tr- forgetting oh Bostock um, that that case which didn't win him many friends on the right uh, it read like a roadmap for a plain reading of the Civil Rights Act that would outlaw racial discrimination in education and so I think those are both in in real danger they're going to be real setbacks and I think not to belabor the point but. I think if the cases do play out that way, I think we'll, we can expect some dissenting opinions that read a lot like the dissents this week. Um, not a whole lot of affirmative argument about how to interpret the Constitution, but a lot of uh, a lot of complaints about the Supreme Court reconsidering uh, old uh, interpretations. I mean, you know, what's interesting here um, is that 20 years ago, it will be 20 years ago next year, which is when these d- decisions will come down because it's not on the docket for this year, but it's on the docket for next year. So 20 years ago in the Bollinger decision, which which um, a very confused and complicated and confusing decision, but famously Sandra Day O'Connor and maybe her last important decision at the Supreme Court said, said that the regime that had been put in place to sort of... Uh, take race as a factor in college admissions um, should be allowed to stand for now. But I think she says 25 years from now, it should go away. So, uh, and that was, and here we are, and it'll be 20 years. So it's not 25 years, right? (laughs) She did say 25 years. We have, this is not something that the court is, is, it does, it does this pretty frequently. And all these warnings are always subsequently dismissed by the legislators who they say it's your job to legislate and they never legislate. And then all of a sudden the court does what it promised to do and everybody's shocked by it. In 2015, Fisher v. University of Austin, we had dissents that upheld race-based admissions, 4-3 decision, because I think Kagan just uh, uh, recused herself. But we had dissents from Alito and Thomas and Chief Justice Roberts 
in that case. Uh, John, you reminded me of the VRA cases where we had two or three decisions preceding the overturning of, I think, Section 4 of the, uh, of the VRA, uh, mm-hmm. in which they warned that Congress has to update this, this preclearance standard because it has no bearing on our current reality. It was established in the 60s. We don't live in the 60s anymore. It's time to update. Congress never updated. They struck it down and everybody's shocked. Yeah, that's the Voting Rights Act that Noah's talking about. And these and these decisions that were that said, OK, we are trying remedy remedies of past discrimination are being applied and we're not ready to say that the remedies have cured things. But at some point in the future, you can't be remedying past discrimination if the discrimination was 75 years earlier, like then then you're just creating a permanent, you know, uh, sort of semi-explicit right. And that can't stand. Anyway, the point I'm, We're I'm trying ten, to make 10 here, years later now, and, and Congress yeah. has yet to update the preclearance standards. Their lethargy is not an excuse for other institutions in the federal government to take over. Well, it is not just lethargy. That's the important thing. And the reason that this is such an important thing, this new battle that the Supreme Court is now willing to join, in which it's basically saying to Congress, take the power that the Constitution has given you and exercise it. Stop throwing it to us and to the let into the uh, to the judicial branch. It's not our writ. Do your jobs. And what's more, it's a real eccentricity of our system that people do not want the power that they have been given by the Constitution. And what society has it ever been the case that people throw their own power away in favor of having less power. That is not a normal standard. That is not how the Federalist, you know, papers that sought to, you know, sort of like create the, the philosophical and practical conditions by which we were going to run this new republic. It assumed that every all fights were going to be a struggle over who got to exercise power and how to balance and weigh those. I don't think anybody saw a future in which Congress is going to go. Thank God we don't have to write laws. Let the you know, let some guy let some guy in the you know Department of Veterans Affairs control that because I don't want to. But it's much easier. And this goes to all the work that Adam does on the administrative state. Uh, it's much easier to, to embrace. And I, I'm thinking here of very popular, uh, completely pernicious, uh, not factually based at all theories about systemic racism and anti-racism, which you know will be brought up and brought to bear on questions about whether affirmative action is still necessary. It's much easier to, to embrace a kind of vague principle like, like, oh, well, systemic racism will always be with us. So we need all these policies in perpetuity and we're going to hand it off to you know, uh, agencies to define this. And Biden is totally on board with this. He just did this with the Fed. He just made a principle of the Fed to look at race in all things with monetary policy. So this has been going on for a while too, but it's gonna be brought to bear when the court says, not, not embracing the political argument, just saying, okay, what's the evidence? We need to see the evidence. And legislators used to do that. They used to have to present evidence and, and negotiate over what they could do as a matter of policy based on the available evidence. They don't like to do that now because the evidence often goes against politically and culturally what they'd like to believe. Um, and they don't, it's, and it's just easier to embrace those theories. And I think that's why we see the anti-racism stuff in particular creeping into policymaking on the left in a way that will have repercussions for decades. It's also easier in a, in a paradoxical way to propose sort of wild schemes outside of the 40 yard lines, um, then, then sort of work through um, what, what may or may not, one may or may not be able to do uh, through the nor- normal legislative, legislative processes. Like for example, it, regarding uh, uh, the Dobbs decision and the, and the Times article this morning about uh, frustrated Democrats, <clears throat> the kinds of things that they're Proposing that 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 they're that they don't that they're upset that they're not seeing, are court packing schemes, uh, uh, attempts to impeach the judges. Mm-hmm. You know this this uh, this stuff is super easy to spout off. Well, you know th- this brings up a very important point that is the at, I think at the heart of this and that people don't really realize, which is that the glowing moment, the great triumphalist moment for what I would call liberal ideas about remaking America, not radical leftist ideas, but liberal ideas was the mid sixties 
right, where where legislation like the Voting Rights Act and this and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and all these 70 pieces of legislation that are now that collectively came to be known as the Great Society legislation were passed. And there was such a consensus in the country, at least at certain levels, that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence began tending and trending in, the, in a kind of similar comparable uh, direction to sort of harmonize what was going on legislatively with the kind of docket that the Supreme Court had. What were the conditions under which those pieces of legislation were passed? An overwhelming, wildly overwhelming Democratic majority uh, in the wake of the 1964 election. That's also Social Security was passed, Medicare was passed. We're talking about 69 Democratic senators. There were 69, there were, the House majority for Democrats was 178 seats. There was total legislative authority and control in the hands of Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats. They could claim, and the court could essentially use the legitimacy of those, the passage of those acts as a kind of lever to continue down its own path toward a new kind of liberal understanding of the Constitution. Now here we are today, and, and, and they're like, we need to pack the courts, we need to do this, we need to do that, and they don't have majorities. I mean, they're kind of insane if you think about it. They got 50 seats in the Senate. They've got a four-seat majority now or three seats or something like some weird it was five, and now there are various people who aren't serving and retirements and things like that where there are empty seats. So I think Pelosi has three, maybe four seat uh, margin. Where are they going to be passing this transformational legislation? And why are they doing it just in time for Republicans to take the reins in the House and the Senate in November, which is the likeliest outcome here, despite their fantasies that this decision is going to sort of like reverse the tide? Um, it may blunt the tide some, but it's not going to reverse the tide. And I think there is a world in which the liberal bubble is so impenetrable that they that they can't even look to see we shouldn't be proposing these crazy measures because in the end they may empower just like Harry Reid did in 2013 by getting rid of the filibuster. They may empower the right in a way that they never. Mitch McConnell said to Mitch said to Harry Reid, "Don't do what you're doing, you idiot. Don't open Pandora's box. You are not going to like what it looks like, and this is what it looks like. Harry Reid is responsible for what has happened. You know what happened on Friday." That we wouldn't have three Supreme Court justices if it weren't for Harry. You know, the, those are three justices. I mean, the filibuster would not have been broken. It would not have happened. Anyway, I just think it's an interesting political dynamic here that what that the left is saying, we need to do all this stuff as though, as though it wasn't a 50-50 country uh, when, it, when it comes to this at the congressional level. I think it's really interesting to see now in hindsight what Roe cost the left. They had all this time in which to legislate sensibly and moderately on abortion, but they didn't, they didn't have any political incentive to because in their eyes, Roe had solved this. We're seeing this at the state level, by the way, in the states, including progressive states, where they have on the books these long dormant pre-Roe restrictions on abortion. Uh, for example, in Wisconsin, right now, the governor has to decide what to do with this law that was on the books before Roe that, 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 that uh, prohibits abortion. And he's saying, well, I'll grant clemency to anybody who's prosecuted under this law. I think the sensible question to ask is, this is Wisconsin. Where were you for the past 50 years, state legislature, that you didn't just repeal this law that was still on the books? And so in the states and in Congress, the Supreme Court time and time again takes away all the incentives for the legislators to actually legislate. And the parallel with the administrative state is exactly the same, that the fact that uh, presidential administrations can stake out much more uh, extreme positions through the regulatory process takes away all the incentives for people to actually legislate and compromise, the incentives in both the president's party and the other party to legislate and moderate, moderately on, on these issues. 
And so for both of these, you see the way that, that, that these outside institutions, outside of the legislature, totally warp the incentives within Congress or within state legislatures to actually do their jobs. Uh, and instead they can channel their ambition into, you know, Madison said ambition would counteract ambition. And, and now ambition, your ambition to go on Fox and Friends counteracts somebody else's ambition to go on, on NPR, right? But it's, it's, it's totally changed the incentives for actual legislators to actually legislate. I mean, it's also an interesting piece of political history because we don't know this. We don't remember this. And it wasn't, you know, it's uh, it's too long ago. But uh, the Democratic Party was not a pro-choice party in the 1970s. I mean, it was very split. And so was the Republican Party. Very split. The sorting, the ideological sorting that led to the Democrats becoming exclusively pro-choice and the Republicans much, much more slowly, actually becoming almost exclusively pro-life. That was not the order of battle in the 1970s. Urban Democrats were pro-life. Most of the major committee chairmen in the House, uh, you know, came from urban centers, were pro-life. And so you wouldn't have had, and that meant in states where there were, particularly where there were large Catholic populations and in which the cardinal or the, you know, the, the diocesan power uh, was, was, you know, before the church scandals was still very, very, very serious. You wouldn't have had uh, a, a desire, a hunger, or willingness to sort of advance this, advance this cause, because they were actually not part of the cause. And so, Democrats accepted the chalice. This is a point, you know, you, Adam. You're saying this was a poison chalice, like they could have, the matter could have been resolved to the, to you know, to, as a legislative matter. And so they were handed this. No, 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 don't bother. Don't bother. We got it covered. We got you can go on and do other things. And then the Democrat Party didn't have to face its own internal contradictions on abortion. And so, I mean, you could also say they had it good for 49 years and now they don't have it good anymore. I mean, that's the other way of looking at it is that is that uh, is that is that they got to this this point. Um, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, the if it took 50 years to overturn Roe. Roe was a very creative document. It created, as I keep trying to explain, created much of the modern right was literally created by this one decision. I mean, a lot of the strings and tendrils that created the conservative coalition that is now, uh, you know, however compromised and ideologically it might be by Trump and various other things. Nonetheless, the conservative coalition that exists um, was formed in the wake of Roe. And very much and intellectually, the firepower of the right on the courts was entirely created by Roe. The world of, you know, when when you when Adam refers to originalism, just to give you a sense, just to explain how this goes, the leading originalist, and there wasn't even originalism wasn't even yet really a, a pure doctrine. The leading originalist was a was a law professor at Yale named Alex Bickle, who wrote for commentary, which was not then a conservative publication. And his great disciple was Bob and best friend was Bob Bork. And Alex Bickle was the guy who said, hey, hey, hey the Supreme Court in all this stuff that it's doing in the 60s, it is it is totally unshackling itself from the Constitution and no standards are being applied that are going to be understandable. And we better watch out because there's a lot of trouble coming down the pike. And then Alex Bickle died at a very young age. Um, but he was this brilliant legal mind. But he wasn't, you know, writing for the university bookman or, you know, or was in some, you know, was at the Mont Pelerin Society. He was a professor at Yale. And and these ideas where you said, OK, I want intellectual consistency in my application of law. Uh, then led an entire, and Adam being sort of the second or, th I don't know, the eighth generation. I don't even know what generation. You're so young. I don't even know what generation you are. Um, he is Gen X. Thank you okay, very much. He is totally Gen <laughs> X. So he's like the third generation. But, you know, like it was in a dorm room across from my dorm room at the University of Chicago that three students at the law school with the, who lived in a dorm in a in a house across the quad from me formed the Federalist Society. Uh, Lee Lieberman and a couple of other people and their and their their uh, their their faculty advisor was Nino Scalia. And, you know, they didn't exist. This world didn't exist 
It was created wholesale out of the way in the wake of this decision that said, you know what, we can just say the Constitution means whatever we want it to mean, which is essentially what Harry Blackman said in his decision. And that was like, okay, you know what, you just said the quiet part out loud. You're gone. You've gone too far now. So Adam White. Read his article, Reigning in the Bureaucrats. Very revelatory, very important, very original. It's in the it's in the July, August commentary. Right there for you. Alongside Noah Rothman's You Are What You Don't Eat. How we politicized food or how food got politicized. Excerpt from his new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, coming out when? Next week. One week from today. Pre-order. Two articles in the same issue. Two articles. Two articles in that same issue by Christine Rosen. One on the politicization of the idea of trauma and one on uh, how the media are whitewashing their own role in uh, the mental health crisis of teenagers created by COVID. Lots of riches there. July, August issue. Go subscribe, subscribe to commentary, help pay for the podcast. Go buy Noah's book. Go read Adam's article. Go read Christine's articles. Go read Noah's article, which will whet your appetite to buy Noah's book, uh, which comes out next week for Abe, Noah, and Christine. And thank you, Adam White of the Boyden Center of Boydenism. I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the camel burning.